One of Fox News's biggest stories just blew up in its face. So this confidential human source, you know, if you're watching other networks, you're not going to hear this story. Mm -hmm. So if you're just watching Fox for the first time, we'll tell you what's happening in this story because the media has been ignoring this. One of the FBI's top informants, a guy with impeccable credentials, a great track record, reported an allegation that Joe Biden took a five million dollar bribe right under Barack Obama's nose. The allegation was gigantic and Fox News ran with it. The Washington Post's Philip Bump calculated that Fox mentioned Biden in the context of a bribe or bribery more than 2,600 times in the past year. Media Matters counted Sean Hannity alone, devoting at least 85 segments to this supposed scandal in the same time frame. Republicans in the House launched an entire impeachment inquiry around this claim. A year's worth of Republican mudslinging has been based on one allegation detailed in an FBI form called a 1023 from one confidential human source. We have now the FD 1023. I have it in my hand. It's the FBI report that was prepared in 2020 when a confidential human source raised allegations that Joe Biden as vice president personally received bribes. This FD 1023 is damning. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. The most corroborating evidence we have is that 1023 form from this highly credible confidential human source. The most corroborating evidence we have is from this highly credible confidential human source. Last week, the Justice Department arrested that confidential human source. His name is Alexander Smirnoff, and he has now been indicted on two counts of lying to the FBI, specifically about providing false derogatory information to the FBI about Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Now, that alone is devastating to the narrative that Fox News and the Republican Party have been pushing. Countless hours of TV accusations and smear campaigns An entire congressional impeachment inquiry, all based on what the Justice Department now says were lies. But this story does not end there. It gets so, so much worse. Because according to a new pretrial filing from the Department of Justice, when this confidential source, Alexander Smirnov, was interrogated after his arrest last week, he told the FBI that he has been getting his information from Russian intelligence officers. So to recap quickly, the basis of the Republican impeachment investigation against President Biden and a year's worth of one of Fox News's biggest anti-Biden stories were just lies from a guy the Department of Justice now claims is a Russian intelligence asset. And according to the Justice Department, until he was arrested last week, Smirnov's plan was to keep poisoning poisoning our nation's political well with more lies passed to him by the Russian government. Smirnoff's efforts to spread misinformation about a candidate of one of the two major parties in the United States continues. That candidate would be Joe Biden. Smirnoff is actively peddling new lies that could impact U.S. elections after meeting with Russian intelligence officials in November. That is election interference. If what the Department of Justice is alleging here is true, the Russian government is actively interfering in the 2024 election to try to help Donald Trump get elected. 
and Russia potentially played Republican elected officials and, by the way, Fox News like a fiddle in order to do so. What makes all of this all the more alarming is that this is not the first time this has happened. These are photos of Rudy Giuliani, then Trump's personal attorney, with his main source when he made corruption allegations against Joe and Hunter Biden before the 2020 election. The guy's name is Andre Durkoch, and in 2020, the U.S. Treasury Department sanctioned Mr. Durkoch. The department put him on a list of Russia-linked election interference actors and said he had been an active Russian agent for over a decade. And this wasn't Joe Biden's Treasury Department. This was Donald Trump's. This was Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin. From at least late 2019 through mid-2020, Durkosh waged a covert influence campaign centered on cultivating false and unsubstantiated narratives concerning U.S. officials. Again, that would be Joe Biden in the upcoming 2020 presidential election. Durkosh's unsubstantiated narratives were pushed in Western media. Hmm. Steve Mnuchin's Treasury Department described it as foreign interference in an attempt to undermine the upcoming 2020 U.S. presidential election. So in 2020, the mark was Rudy Giuliani. In 2024, it looks like it's Congressman Jim Jordan and James Comer. Twice now, Republicans have become witting or unwitting useful idiots, spreading lies about Joe Biden to hurt his chances in the presidential election, never minding what happens to this country in the process. Joining me now is New York Congressman Dan Goldman, member of the House Oversight Committee. He served as lead counsel in the First impeachment of Donald Trump. Congressman Goldman, thank you for being here. Um, I'd first like to get, uh, you know, your assessment of how much this reporting has dimmed the Republican fervor to impeach the president or just how it's landed among your fellow colleagues on the Hill. Well, I think many of our my colleagues on the Democratic side are um, are shocked, but not surprised um, because it is uh, once again, uh, every election, it seems the Republicans fall in favor with the Russians and are used either, as you said, wittingly or unwittingly by Russian intelligence to try to interfere in the election. You'll remember in 2016, Donald Trump <clears throat> says, Russia, if you're listening, find Hillary Clinton's emails. Five hours later, they searched for them and fished them and hacked them and got them. Uh, the Mueller report said that Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman for Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, was providing internal information to a Russian intelligence agent and that the campaign was welcoming the Russian interference. Now we learn <clears throat> that there is a, a whole new scheme uh, from 2020 with to originally, I suspect, to interfere in the 2020 election in favor of Donald Trump, which is when this confidential source provided this information to the FBI. It is now coming out in 2024 because, as you point out correctly, Republican members of Congress are once again witting or unwitting agents of Russian intelligence peddling a false narrative that is Russian disinformation in an effort to interfere in the election and boost Donald Trump. It is shocking. 
It is shocking that eight years later, we are still dealing with Russian interference and the Republican Party is still welcoming it and facilitating it. I, I guess I wonder if you think they care. I mean, on, on one hand, you'd think after years and years of this, Republicans would be somewhat skeptical when given a plum piece of information that, oh, just conveniently undermines the Biden presidential campaign efforts, right? It sort of seems like if it's a means to Republican ends, which is to get Trump back into power or to keep power themselves, who cares where the information or disinformation is from? Do you think that I mean, do you think that it matters right. to them that they, they may be unwittingly being employed by the FSB to suit Russia's ends as well as their own? I, I don't. And, and I've been dealing with it for this entire Congress. The entire uh, weaponization subcommittee that Jim Jordan runs is designed to undermine enforcement against disinformation that could interfere with our elections. That is the whole purpose of that committee, is to have a chilling effect on law enforcement or other government agencies that are trying to stop Russian interference. This is their MO. They will do whatever they can. And they knew this was false. It was fully debunked in the impeachment investigation that I led in 2019 by witness after witness who was in Ukraine at the time uh, or was in the State Department or the National Security Council. These were Trump administration officials who all said that what Joe Biden did related to the prosecutor general in Ukraine was consistent with official U.S. policy and all of the Western world and that it was bad for Burisma, Hunter Biden's uh, company. Yet they get this uncorroborated uh, 1023 form from the FBI and hold it up as the best example, the best evidence that they have. But I'll tell you one way, Alex, that they may be chilled. And that is now that they know that this information was funneled through Russian intelligence, uh, through the FBI by Russian intelligence and is part of a Russian disinformation scheme to interfere in our election. If they continue with this investigation, they are opening themselves up to a criminal investigation for conspiring with Russia to interfere in the election. That may be the only thing that keeps them from doing from going forward. Uh, let me just follow up on that. Do you think that there is an appetite inside the Department of Justice to look into this on that level? I, I, I don't know. Um, David Weiss, the special counsel, um, is the one who pursued this case against the confidential source. You'll recall this information was provided by Bill Barr to a U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh to evaluate it. He then passed it over to special counsel Weiss, who's the one handling the Hunter Biden investigation. And now we see that that special counsel Weiss uh, fully investigated this. And if Mr. Smirnoff uh, is remanded um, and it's being appealed, right now. And ultimately, if he cooperates, uh, who knows where this may lead? He may have a lot more information. And I suspect the special counsel will just follow the evidence wherever it leads. That's but the there's thing no about question now. They know. They know. They know. This is Russian this is Russian intelligence disinformation that is designed to interfere in our election. If they continue with this investigation that helps Russia do just that, that is conspiracy to interfere in our election. Just permit me a moment to absorb the sort of potential irony of the situation here. This what is being termed what, the investigation into Hunter Biden 
that has yet to turn. I mean, there people have various assessments of the merits of all that, but that could then make a U-turn and come right back to end up investigating the very Republicans who've been so zealous and interested in persecute prosecuting Hunter Biden. Is that what you're saying here? Uh, yes, and not, it goes even further than that because they, their House Republicans have, uh, taken responsibility and, uh, honor in their effort to interfere in Hunter Biden's criminal case and to blow up the plea agreement. And the only reason that this investigation is continuing, uh, or at least one significant reason is because that plea agreement fell through. And so, yes, the irony is if, if this investigation ultimately d- continued only because of their efforts to interfere in it, and then it comes back onto them. And, and I, that, look, we're far away from that point. I don't want to, you know, uh, make any assumptions or speculation that there is any evidence of criminal wrongdoing. The point that I am trying to make, though, is that we now know there's a plausible claim that they didn't know this was Russian intelligence information. I would like to know whether they did or didn't. And I hope Special Counsel Weiss uh, does do that investigation. But regardless, right now they know. And if they continue to push forward with what is Russian intelligence disinformation clearly designed to help Donald Trump in this upcoming election, then they are complicit in spreading that disinformation. Congressman Dan Goldman, uh, Hunter Biden returns to the Hill, I believe, next week to testify behind closed doors at the House Oversight Committee. We will be checking in with you again soon. Thanks for your time tonight, sir. Thank you. Coming up, testicle kicking chair slamming, and a broken rib. Republican infighting in one key battleground state has taken on the characteristics of a bar brawl. Can Democrats take advantage before a pint glass hits them in the face? But first, Donald Trump warps reality by telling Fox News viewers that he didn't actually have to hand over the classified documents he hoarded down at Mar-a-Lago. As his lawyers mount a kitchen sink defense in a bid to, what else, delay his trial. The latest on Trump's legal woes, coming up next. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Why didn't you just hand them over when they were requested, though? I mean, they requested them. You could have just handed them over. Probably saved yourself a lot of trouble. First of all, I didn't have to hand them over. But second of all, I would have done that. We were talking, and then all of a sudden they raided Mar-a-Lago. Do you remember? They said, could you put an extra lock on the door? We showed them where they were. We showed them. This week, Donald Trump sat down with Fox News and asserted that he did not have to hand over the classified documents that were squirreled away at Mar-a-Lago, which is wrong and was also illegal. And now Trump's legal team is throwing the kitchen sink at the judge in this case in an effort to delay it from going to trial before the election and maybe forever. 
In a midnight filing last night, Trump's lawyers said they plan to methodically challenge every facet of special counsel Jack Smith's case, including claiming presidential immunity. Yes, you've heard that somewhere before, despite the fact that Trump was not actually president when any of this happened. Joining me now to discuss all of this is former FBI general counsel Andrew Weissman and former federal prosecutor Ankush Kadori. Thank you guys both for being here. Um, Andrew, first of all, are, am I living in the twilight zone in, in, in worrying that we are going to see we have this whole presidential immunity saga playing out in the federal election interference case? Is it possible that we will have another presidential immunity defense saga playing out in the Florida courts and the Florida district appeal, uh, uh, appeals courts? It is possible that Donald Trump will raise it there, but for the obvious reason that he was not president when this happened, um, it is that is really a dead loser, even with a judge who many people think has not only her thumb on the scale, but like her hand or forearm or heart or She's head. She's thrown herself on, on the scale. Exactly. Um, I, as you can tell, think that's what's going on. But even she, I do not think, is is going to go down that road. She has many, many ways to continue delaying this case. Um, and that, you know, what she is doing now is really just a question of essentially having a pocket veto on the case by not scheduling the trial. I do not think that one of the things she will do, though, is say that there's presidential immunity, if not because it's just so legally wrong, because she's clearly made legally wrong decisions before yeah. and been reversed twice. But if you want to get removed from the case, you That's thought, a surefire way to do it. Exactly. So she's smart enough to know, don't make that mistake. We think. I mean, I just think everything <laughs> needs we'll a caveat. See. Yes. Does it feel to you, Ankush, like Jack Smith is kind of teeing up uh, a, a, an appeal to the 11th Circuit or to the higher powers to get Judge Cannon removed from this case? Because she made a decision, I believe it was February 6th, to unseal the identities of 24 potential witnesses against the entreaties of the special counsel. The special counsel is now going back and saying, you made an error. Please reconsider this. Is this a longer bid to, to sort of have a paper trail of bad decisions on the part of Judge Cannon to get her taken off the case? Well, look, I think for Jack Smith and his team, the proximate objective at any given moment is to just have this case moving forward yeah. to trial if possible. Um, I don't know what's in his head if they have sort of a long game of trying to one day get up to the Court of Appeals and, and have her removed. That would be a pretty aggressive move. But they're clearly getting frustrated. These decisions that she's been handing down, including from the very beginning, dealing with the special master and now recently with respect to disclosure of these uh, identities of these witnesses are very problematic and understandably frustrating to them. And I think Jack Smith is right. I think she did get the law wrong uh, on, on the recent issue that that he's teed up concerning the disclosure. So I don't know if it'll end up there. That would be a very bold move. But um, she's making a lot of uh, steps here that are rightly frustrating them. I mean, the special master thing was that was one that was one issue. This is the unsealing information and the identities of sources that, that could put their lives in peril, Andrew. Yeah. So I, I think that this is the kind of issue I'm just putting myself in their shoes. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the issue of why you had to do the search at Mar-a-Lago. If you know that there is highly sensitive classified information, you're not thinking about a criminal case. You're thinking about why you are in government, which is to protect our national security. Um, this is similar. If there are witnesses whose identities are going to be um, disclosed either prematurely or in many cases needlessly, yeah. that's what Jack Smith is saying, you have to appeal. 
Um, this is not one where you say, oh, well, we lost, but there's, you know, well, who, who cares about the risk? If the risk is to civilians, that is why Jack Smith is in office. That is why that team is career people. Um, they will appeal that. I, I think that the best hope for um, why Evan Cannon will reverse herself on this is because she does not want to get slapped down again because By the, the risk because, exactly and i agree completely with ankush that legally she's dead wrong that is humiliating though right just to be clear to have to reverse it's not like the appeals court says you were wrong it's like she literally have to, has to say oh you know the thing i decided a month ago i was wrong and um you were you were right yeah i mean that does happen but i will say this would be the third time that this has happened. As a friend of mine who's a judge said, after the first two, I'm not sure I would have gotten out of bed that morning. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, in a case of this high profile to get it wrong so many times. And it's always wrong for Trump. Um, you know, it's not like you're sort of even handedly just showing that you're just not ready for prime time. This is really, as I said, looking very skewed. I, I would love to get your thoughts on what's happening with the trial date here, right? She has a March, I think it's a March 1st hearing to basically decide whether the May 20th trial date moves or not. Why hasn't she moved it yet? Because it seems like that's also creating chaos, just given the uncertainty around the federal election interference case. No date has been put on the calendar for that, but presumably that's going to happen if it happens maybe in May, June. So Eileen Cannon holding this trial date seems to be problematic on a number of levels. Yeah, you know, it's not that unusual for judges to hold trial dates and then to push them off as, as they sort of approach. This is a very different type of case because it's so high profile. So yeah. I share the concerns that people have about her sort of slow walking this. She, it seems quite apparent to me that she does not anticipate this trial occurring before November. Yeah. Uh, and is not particularly interested in it happening in November, which means it could never happen if Trump is reelected. Um so, uh, uh, you know, they're on a t- very tight timeline here. I- I'm not so sure that the-, the May date is necessarily crowding any of the other cases out, just given where they are themselves located. Um, but I do understand why people are-, are anxious to see some sort of sort of real calendar date on this case. Do you think that that's I mean, how do you read her? First of all, she makes this decision for pretrial motions. Trump actually, his team wants to consolidate all of their their motions into one effect. I'm really paraphrasing here in nominal yeah, yeah. terms, into one document effectively. Yeah. And she says, no, you need to file them individually, which means that Smith in turn needs to file the responses and just creating a lot of, I'm not going to say busy work, but it's a lot of, a lot more stuff to go through. At the very least, that shows enormous inexperience. Um, but it, it really is like it's saying, by the way, I don't want one consolidated brief addressing everything. And she actually said, I want you to take lots and lots and lots of pages to address each thing. I mean, no serious judge who's experienced does that. I have a cynical take, by the way, on the trial date, which is I think Judge Cannon was trying to use it as a blocker, meaning that it was sitting there you know, as a date that she had set. So it put restrictions on where other people could move. What I find interesting is it's so obvious that Ankush is right, that everyone's like, there's no way that trial's happening. That I think that both Judge Chuckin and um, the New York judge are like, well, we're not even going to take it seriously because it's so obvious. (laughs) Nobody even talks about it potentially, even interfering with the Alvin Bragg case, right? Exactly. The people were just like, we know that's not happening. And in fact, you know, Donald Trump's own lawyers have been saying that trial can't possibly go. So people, to the extent that she was trying to use it as a blocker, everyone in the system knows that's not happening. 
when we talk about the sort of political um, influence or the politics influencing court decisions, I do need to bring up for your thoughts this bizarre series of events that's taken place in Arizona. The attorney general of Maricopa County, Rachel Mitchell, is refusing to extradite a man who murdered a woman in a Manhattan hotel room because she is she says she cannot trust Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg to prosecute the case. This seems like the after effect of the Bragg um, indictment of Donald Trump, perchance. And I wonder what you make of it in terms of sort of new line in the sand uh, as it concerns the court's the prosecutors and the attorneys general in this country. Yeah, well, I certainly agree that Republicans seem to enjoy taking these little swipes and shots at Alvin. Um, it's not a good idea. My question for this person who has made this decision is whether it works both ways. Yeah. So if someone commits a murder in Arizona and then they go to New York and carjack, does Alvin now get to say, Alvin Bragg get to say, we're holding on to him until we resolve our case, which may be whenever in the New York courts and we don't care about your murder case. We're not going to extradite this person for you. It sets a bad precedent. It is not good for like interstate cooperation, yeah. enforcement of our laws throughout the country. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, they're able to work something out. I, it's not a good precedent, Andrew. It is the insidious effect of sort of Trump and acolytes the, to see this so clearly partisan issue affecting something like this. And and by the way, they need to get their story straight in Alvin Bragg. It's that he's he's weak on crime, but he's actually prosecuting Donald Trump. And as Alvin Bragg's office has said, the murder rate has actually gone down. They are they can actually walk and chew gum because you know what? They can prosecute white collar crime and Donald Trump and they can prosecute murder um, to see somebody do this in law enforcement is it's beyond disheartening. I mean, this is exactly what you're in office not to do. Uh, yeah. Breaking the law should be uh, something held as a universal um, breaking the law should be uh, guidance. Prosecuting those who have broken the law should be guidance for all attorneys general, no matter what states they reside in. Uh, Andrew Weissman and Kush Kardori, thank you guys both for joining me on set, no less. You're welcome. Much more ahead this evening, including chaos in Michigan's Republican Party. What a year of infighting, which quite literally included chair slamming and a broken rib. What that means for Michigan's Republican primary election next week. But first, the shocking ruling out of Alabama that could effectively end in vitro fertilization in that state and others. Erin Carmone joins me to discuss that next. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Okay, try to guess where this is from. 
Even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. If you guess the Bible, you guessed wrong. That statement was written last week by Alabama State Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Parker. It was part of his recurring concurring opinion, ruling that the frozen embryos of IVF patients should be considered children and disposing of one can be considered a wrongful death. That decision has sparked confusion and outrage and panic among people who really want to be parents and might need the help of in vitro fertilization to become ones. And not just in Alabama. Liberty Council, a conservative Christian litigation group, has asked the Florida Supreme Court to consider Alabama's IVF decision before ruling on a pending ballot measure that would codify abortion access in Florida. And it seems like the Liberty Council might have a supporter on the Florida bench. In a hearing earlier this month, Florida Chief Justice Carlos Muniz floated the idea of fetal personhood, noting that the court hasn't yet taken a position on whether the state's constitution protects an unborn child at any stage of pregnancy. Joining me now is Erin Carmone, senior correspondent at New York Magazine and co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Erin Thank you for being here tonight and helping me make sense of this. I mean, do you think what we're witnessing in real time here is potentially the death knell of IVF in red states across America, much like abortion access? It it certainly looks like it's headed that way in Alabama. But, you know, I want to step back for a second. In 2011, I went to Mississippi to cover a personhood ballot measure in one of the most conservative states, very similar to Alabama. It failed because people pointed out that fetal personhood would naturally lead to restricting IVF. And there were enough people in the state who rebelled against that and voted against it. Um, But Alabama has been on this track to embrace fetal personhood from the beginning. And they did it in ways that did not immediately capture attention the way upper middle class people who can afford IVF, who want to be parents, can. So they first started prosecuting pregnant people who use drugs. The Alabama State Supreme Court said more than 10 years ago that you could charge pregnant people with chemical endangerment and that fetuses were children for the purposes of that law. They separately also have said even before Roe v. Wade, uh, that, that Alabama's constitution protected fetal, fetuses and embryos as persons. Um, so there's some incoherence here. There was also the state lawmaker in Alabama who said when uh, one of the abortion bans was being debated, he said, no, this doesn't cover the embryo in the lab because it's not inside a woman. Right. So there's still some part of the movement that hasn't quite figured out what it wants to do with respect to IVF, which is enormously popular. It helps people build their family regardless of circumstance. But it seems like the wing that is ascendant right now is the absolutist. You mentioned this deeply religious language in the concurrence, uh, this this uh, fetal personhood above all that once was considered marginal has become extremely powerful. And so when it was people who use drugs or Alabama even had somebody uh, even appointed a lawyer for a fetus uh, when a teen was seeking a judicial bypass for an abortion. So when it was the abortion patient, when it was the drug user, uh, then it was the woman who had the miscarriage. Now it's the woman who would or the family that would like to have more children. Um, 
It is really a question fundamentally of reproductive control that is affecting people in all different circumstances and decisions of pregnancy. Yeah, well, and I would assume that that sort of that reality of who this affects, first of all, people that actively want to have children, right, which is not necessarily the case when you're talking about abortion. But this is all people who want to procreate. Many of them are wealthy, and I'm sure plenty of them are Republicans. Some of them are not wealthy. But the fact is, when you talk about constituencies, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding how this is. I'm setting aside the morals and ethics here for a moment, but just politically, like how this is advantageous for conservatives to run on. Well, you know, it's not unheard of for states to restrict IVF. It was done in Italy. It was done in Poland under different governments. It's not popular. It didn't last. But it is theoretically possible for this to happen. Um, I, I think it just needs to be seen in the context of even though it is fundamentally irrational, some people said it's ironic, it's irrational. They are willing to go this far to enshrine into law. They're willing to even prevent babies from being born. Um, in order to prove a point, uh, ultimately a religious point about the value of a frozen embryo being above the desires of living people on this earth. Um, Erin, I think according to the Washington Post, at least 11 states have broadly defined personhood beginning at fertilization. And those states include, I believe, Alabama, Mississippi, Oklahoma and South Carolina. I mean, do you see what's happening in Alabama as a usable template for other states that want to aggressively pursue fetal personhood amendments? They certainly would like that to be the case. But Alex, I mean, you and I have talked before about how deeply unpopular now, uh, in a way that I think even pro-choice advocates are surprised by how deeply unpopular restricting abortion has been in these states. So I I, I do think, I mean, all day I've been getting freaking out text messages from people that I don't usually hear from, like, is this for real? Is this going to stand? It gets people's attention. I think you're right about the politics of this. I think it's a great moment to look at all of the interconnections here um, between people who are seeing their reproductive freedom restricted, regardless of what kind of outcome they want for their pregnancy. Um, So I I do think even though IVF is unfortunately not available, not accessible, not affordable to everybody who would like to use it uh, to treat infertility, I do think it commands people's attention uh, in a way that has begun to happen with other things, but hadn't before Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's just the absolute chaos of the post-Dobbs decision, really in evidence Mm -hmm. today as we read the headlines in the newspaper. Erin Carmone, thank you so much for your essential reporting on all of this, Erin. It's great to have you on the show tonight. Thank you. Still to come this evening, the Republican Party in Michigan is in the middle of a meltdown. What all of the fighting, including reported fist fighting, means for Democratic hopes this November. That is coming up next. There have been plenty of headlines in recent weeks announcing that Democrats have a problem in the state of Michigan when it comes to the 2024 election. And while, yes, it is true that President Biden has some real work ahead of him in that state, particularly with the state's Arab American voters, there is another side to the Michigan story that has gone largely overlooked. For all the issues Michigan Democrats are facing, the Michigan Republican Party appears to be collapsing in on itself like a souffle. It started last year when Michigan Republicans chose Christina Caramo to be the new head of the Michigan State Republican Party. Caramo was a vocal election denier who had just lost the race for Michigan Secretary of State and never conceded. Connection? Possibly so. But Michigan Republicans decided to put Ms. Caramo in charge of their party anyway. And then 
they immediately started fighting about it. Literally. That spring, not one, but two consecutive meetings of the Michigan Republican Party broke into physical altercations, one of which involved testicle kicking, chair slamming, and a broken rib. After Ms. Karamo's first year as chair, the Michigan Republican Party is in dire financial straits. That, in turn, has led to accusations that she has misused party funds. And so in January, a faction of the party voted to oust Ms. Karamo. They elected a new party chair. The only problem was that Christina Karamo is an election denier, and election deniers do not admit defeat or concede power. That's kind of their whole shtick. So began the Michigan Republican Party's civil war. Christina Karamo refused to accept that she was legitimately ousted. Michigan Republicans ended up with two competing official Republican Party websites, both declaring a different person to be the party's official chair. Last week, the National Republican Party stepped in and officially recognized the new chair over Christina Caramo. But Christina Caramo is still not admitting defeat. That's the crazy thing about election deniers. Caramo called the National Republican Party's endorsement of the new chair sabotage and discriminatory. She called the Republicans who voted to oust her a, quote, imposter organization fraudulently claiming to be the Michigan Republican Party. It's not like she's been doing this from the sidelines either. According to, in addition to the party's social media accounts, Christina Caramo reportedly still has control of the party's bank accounts and assets. And now this is all about to interfere with a Republican primary in the state. To be clear, this was already going to be a confusing year in Michigan Republican politics because of some complicated calendar shenanigans, which I literally don't have time to get into right now. Michigan is holding both a Republican primary and a Republican caucus convention this year. The primary is set to take place on February 27th, and the caucus convention is set to take place four days later on March 2nd. Now, if you're wondering, what's a caucus convention? You can sort of think of it like the Iowa caucuses, but instead of having caucus sites across the whole state, the whole thing will be held in one place. Or at least that was supposed to be how it worked. Because now the two factions of the Michigan Republican Party are holding two separate caucus conventions in two separate cities, each one claiming to be the official Republican caucus. So that means there will be one Republican primary and two Republican caucus conventions this year, which is, I mean, hey, why not? It's not like Michigan is going to be an important battleground state this year and Republicans really need to have all their ducks in a row. Wait a second. Obama White House and Clinton campaign veteran Jen Palmieri joins me to discuss all of this coming up next and what could possibly go wrong. A new poll out today from the battleground state of Michigan shows Donald Trump leading President Biden by four points. But when that same poll asks voters how they would vote if Donald Trump were convicted of a crime before Election Day, well, the race is dead even. So Trump's trials do matter in this election, but there are a lot of other external factors that will determine this race in a state like Michigan, whether it's Biden's support for the war in Gaza and its effect on the state's Arab-American community or the absolute goat rodeo happening inside the state's Republican Party. 
of the known unknowns here, which party has the advantage? Joining me now is Jennifer Palmieri, former communications director for both the Obama White House and Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. She is also the co-host of MSNBC's How to Win in 2024 podcast. Um, Jen, First of all, the saga, the comedy of errors, I'll call it, inside the Michigan Republican Party. I mean, like, it's just it's you wouldn't believe it if someone told you it, it, it was hap- uh, I mean, I'm making no sense here. It's not to be believed, I guess, is the shorthand here. And, uh, and you and I will. Yeah, we were, we covered this, you know, in 22. It was just starting. Uh, you know, when we were at the circus, it was just the craziness on the Republican side was just starting with Christina taking over. Well, I mean, my question to you is from an organizing standpoint, right? Like, how much does it matter that the, the party apparatus in that state, which is a key state in 2024, yeah. is a shambles? Like, what is the meaningful impact of that from just a campaign perspective? Yeah, it matters. And it, you know, the Democrats, Democrats have gotten really good at winning the state of Michigan, right? Gretchen Whitmer won by 10 points. They flipped the state legislature. Uh, it's easier to vote in, in, in Michigan right now. You can, um, there's, or, or they have, they reinstated, they instated early vote a few years ago. There's lots of ways to do it. So that means that organization is really key. Um, and, you know, to have, it's not just demoralizing what, what's happening to the Michigan Republican Party. The party that the, Mich- the Michigan Republican Party gave us Gerald Ford, right? And this is what it's come to. But that is organizing that state, particularly when they have there's so many options for voting. It's a big deal. So it really it and, and that race is going to be super close. The Biden Trump race and Michigan's going to be very close. And to not to lose your edge on organizing is 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 not a small matter. It's a big deal. What do you make of the sort of loss of support that President Biden has seen among the Arab American community in Michigan? I mean, I know that um, the Biden White House is sort of changing its position somewhat, or at least its posture as it pertains to uh, Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the war more broadly. But I do wonder, with 29,000 people dead in Gaza, whether that damage can even begin to be undone. Um, dead bodies are just not something you can unmessage. Right. The I think the certainly the white everyone understands what the situation is, right? I mean the White House, the White House understands what the situation is globally and in in terms of, of Gaza and Israel and they've, you know, we all know the steps that they're that they are taking with the Israeli government. They also understand the political impacts in Michigan. They've sent a lot of. There's been a lot of surrogates have been gone in to talk to the Arab American community in Michigan. I know that Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is recommending that people in the Democratic primary, which is only on one day, um, on next Tuesday, that people vote um, uncommitted as opposed to voting for Biden. I don't know if people actually do that. That could give people. That could give the Biden team a sense of. Uh, how bad the problem is. You know, the president went to Michigan recently. Uh, they were bracing for protesters. It didn't really materialize. It's still, you know, you're still sort of uncertain how, when there's an existential threat in our own country, um, how, uh, you know, how that might play out in Michigan. People are concerned about Gaza, but aren't they all also concerned about America? Um, like I said before, though, the margin of victory in, in Michigan is going to be very close. So it, it's it is it's a very legitimate concern to worry about what's going to happen there American vote in that state. It seems really clear that the White House believes they have an issue uh, with the border. There is a suggestion there's reporting that the president may pursue some very hard line immigration policy through executive order. And I wonder, as a matter of strategy, Jen, whether 
that helps to neutralize the issue or does it just increase its salience at a time when the majority of swing state voters believe Donald Trump will handle handle the border issue 20, I think by 20 points in every swing state compared to President Biden? Yeah, it's it's his. I I think the way this the way I would look at immigration for for Biden is it is another opportunity to show that you have competence that you're trying to solve problems and the Republicans are not right. So Trump is always going to have an advantage over Biden in managing the border because immigration is his his core issue. And even though he didn't manage the border well when he was president, it, it's his core issue. But I think what Biden can do, and this is what partly what uh, Tom Suozzi did in Long Island, is make it about Republicans not wanting to solve problems. And so the president does an executive action on a border. He's showing, I tried to get a legislation passed. They won't do it because Trump doesn't want to solve this problem. And I'm doing what I can. And I think you make it a larger governing issue. Jennifer Palmieri, my friend, thank you for joining me tonight. Really appreciate your time. That is our show for this evening. 